In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is giving his Sermon on the Mount, and in Matthew 5 and verse 38, he says this, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So when I was studying in preparation for this message, and I knew that I wanted to go to this passage because the question today is, what if Jesus was actually serious if he wanted me to love my enemies? And when I read this, I had a profound awakening, a profound and deep truth that my eyes were open to when I read this, that God actually does love Bears fans. Uh, I, I was so, so blown away by that. You know, living in Wisconsin for almost 10 years, I had heard so many things otherwise and when I read that, I was like, wow, he does love them. There is a chance for them to go to heaven. <laughs> but you know what? So many times we view humanity through the lens of heroes and villains, good guys and bad guys. And we think that we get to decide who is the good guys and who's the bad guys. And we definitely want to consider ourselves the good guys. We think that we are the heroes. We think we're the do-gooders. And because of that, we look at everyone who's not doing the good we're doing and they're the villain. They're the ones who are doing wrong. They're the ones who don't quite get it. And we somehow have the moral high ground. And we live our lives with this assumption that because we're doing more good than other people are doing, or that we haven't done the bad other people are doing, that we somehow have the high ground and we're superior. But how can I love my enemies if I have that type of a heart and that type of an attitude? This is the exact same heart and attitude that Jonah had toward the Ninevites. And that's a hard thing for us to comprehend because, I mean, uh, Jonah had been dealing with these people and the persecution that they had placed upon uh, the Israelites for over 200 years, and Jonah knew this history. As a matter of fact, I could imagine some of Jonah's friends were probably victims of some of their torture. I could imagine some of Jonah's family members, his ancestors, were probably tortured by these people. He did not want to go talk to these people because they were violent. They were wicked. They were evil. They were enemies. And the last thing he wanted to see was perhaps God showing mercy on them. God didn't even promise Jonah or the Ninevites that he was going to show mercy on them. There was never a promise given that they would get uh, the relief or that God would relent from destroying them. The word was for Jonah to just go to the people and preach a five-word sermon. And I told you last week, don't get excited. It's never going to happen. The five-word sermon that caused repentance. Well, I don't know. I mean, if the Lord used me in five words and then it's like you're dismissed and lives were changed and people repented, I'd be for that. That's good. Um, but it's not today. Um, 
Jonah is in this situation where now he turns his attention to Nineveh. He's run from God. He's been thrown into the sea. He got swallowed up by a whale. He spent a few days there. He got thrown up on the beach, literally and figuratively. And then now he's setting his sights towards Nineveh, where now he's committed to obey and do what God told him to do and go preach that five-word sermon. So let's read that together. If you have your Bible, go ahead and go over to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah's one of those that may be a little bit more challenging to find. If this helps you, page 775. That joke never gets old for me, by the way. I will do that forever as long as I'm your pastor. And if someone ever actually has page 775, it'll be a good day. All right, Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Isn't this cool? Even in like the first verse of this, you're already encouraged because God came to Jonah a second time. Aren't you glad God comes to us more than once? Amen. <laughs> like God gave him another chance. God comes to Jonah a second time. Thank God for that. That's, that should give us all hope. Verse 3, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So that sackcloth represents mourning, all right? Anytime you read that in the scripture where you see sackcloth and ash, and you're like, what is that all about? It was a ritual of mourning. It was a sign of mourning. So if someone saw someone wearing those types of garments and they had poured ashes, literal ashes on their head and they were sitting in those ashes, um, you would understand that person was grieving, they were mourning, they were repenting, and so these people were doing that after hearing Jonah's uh, proclamation. Verse eight, uh, or verse six, sorry, the word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Hang on a second. Have you ever seen, like, Star Wars, Return of the Jedi? You remember this, like, gross character, Jabba the Hutt? Anybody remember Jabba? You remember the scene, I think it's like in the very beginning of that movie, where Jabba thinks he's in control, he's this mob boss, he's this wicked, evil, disgusting looking creature, and he thinks he's just got it going on, he thinks he's so powerful, and in walks someone who makes a threat to his great power, and he's surrounded by all of his people, all of his peeps, all of his, all of his cronies, and he's just in this position of power, sitting on his throne, and there's a threat that's made to him. Anytime a threat is made to a super bad villain, wicked, evil person by someone, what do they normally do? They normally go, ha, 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 like Jabba made that wicked laugh in that movie. He just laughs it off and laughs and laughs and laughs until that person pulls out a little bomb and uh, blows stuff up. And so then he wasn't laughing after that. But at, would you imagine if this king of Nineveh is so evil, 
and he hears one person issuing a threat, don't you think that if he's really wicked and evil that he'd be just like Jabba the Hutt? Like, who do you think you are? He'd just laugh this thing off and be like, I'm powerful. I'm the king of Nineveh. You know how powerful I am? You know how great my armies are? You know how afraid people are of us? Don't you think he would have laughed that off? So something caused him to repent. And it wasn't even a promise because Jonah didn't preach a message that had a promise attached to it of deliverance. The only thing that Jonah preached to them is that you guys are going to be destroyed. And so the king trusts at some level in something that he doesn't fully understand. He doesn't really know all that much about God. He doesn't even know if this is really going to happen, but something grips him and he begins to fear the Lord and he begins to trust that the word of the Lord was true. And then he hopes that the same God who was gonna cast judgment on them would be able to relent. And they thought the only way we could do this is if we show deep, deep repentance to the point that even your cats and dogs are gonna repent. He said, put sackcloth on every beast, on every animal, how goofy would that have looked? Like, I mean, you see people repenting, that's one thing, right? But then, you know, you put little Fifi, like in a little costume, put some ashes on, on little Fifi's head, and you're like, you are not eating or drinking anything because you need to repent, and you're grieved over your sin. And even the animals are, 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 are in this posture of showing that the entire nation, even their belongings, they're saying, we're all repenting. Like, the cows are repenting, you know, the sheep are repenting, everybody's repenting. And the king issues this decree, and you have a, a lot of people in this very influential city who are corporately crying out to God, hoping that they would be spared, and they're repenting of their evil ways. 200 years of evil. These people were so evil, they grew up in it, and it was all they knew. They didn't even know good. They, grow up, they grew up new and evil. I mean, they're just bad from birth for, for generations. And because of a word from the Lord, they began to trust it's interesting to me because the same thing happened with the sailors on the boat. When Jonah was on a boat with all these sailors, they were all unbelievers and they were pagans. They worshiped false gods because when the storm arose, what did they do? They started praying to all of these other gods, hoping that maybe one of them would work. They were like playing the God lottery, like figuring out which God would save them from this storm. And they ran out of gods. They're like, we tried them all and we're still in this predicament. And so they asked Jonah, and then Jonah says, yeah, it's me, and it's our God, and, and if you throw me overboard, then maybe God will spare you. And so they've got him, and they're ready to like heave ho, and as they're counting, they're praying. And the Bible says that their prayer goes something like this, Lord, don't let the blood of this man be on our hands, heave ho, one, two, three, here he goes. And then all of a sudden, the storm ceased. And then in that moment, Scripture says that they made vows to God, which I bet they would have. What are they doing? They, they had a genuine trust in the Lord. He's the only one that can save me right now. And I'm going to do this. And God, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow through with this. And I don't feel right about throwing this guy overboard. But you know what, Lord? And then they made vows to God. So isn't this interesting that God has saved all of these people that Jonah would have counted unworthy to save? All of these people that Jonah wanted to see destroyed. People that didn't worship like him. People that didn't believe like him people that had hurt him, people that had persecuted and, and tortured his, his family members, his friends, his countrymen for generations, and now here they are repenting without even a promise that God would relent because they're just trusting that the God has to be a good God 
and maybe he'll show us mercy. And they begin to do what Proverbs 9 and 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. They started the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. They began to take God seriously at his word. They began to fear him and they began to say, Lord, we know you're serious and we're asking for your mercy and God was faithful to show them mercy. The real enemy is not people, okay? I know that we get caught up when we get hurt, when people wound us, when we have people that we would consider enemies or people who are against us, people who want to see us suffer, people who, who revel in us failing, people who rejoice in us going through difficulty. Um, it's not people. It's not the opposite political party of what you vote. It's not a foreign country. It's not some foreign enemy that wants to see death to America. It, that's not our enemy. You see, the real enemy is not people. It's actually self-reliance. That's the real enemy. Because people who rely on themselves want what they think they deserve. And this is a very dangerous thing. And this actually is something that God hates because it moves us out of a position of depending on God and trusting in his goodness. And instead, we're defining for ourselves and trusting in ourselves our own definition of what good really is instead of trusting in God's righteousness. We're trusting in our own brand of righteousness. And we think of ourselves good, and we come to this conclusion by comparing ourselves to other people. And it puts us in a position to take the moral high ground and think our behavior and our disciplines actually make us good, but actually it leads our hearts to serve something different. And maybe you've heard this phrase before, this term. It causes us actually to serve moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. And maybe you've heard this before. Maybe some of you have heard this phrase. And some of you may be wondering, what is it? Well, it's moralistic therapeutic deism, and it's moralistic because it is a system that's based on our merits. It's a system that's based on our behavior and our values, and we see those things as superior. And it's therapeutic because we compare ourselves to others, and it makes us feel good. It makes us feel at peace. That's where we'll say things like, well, at least I didn't kill anybody, right? There are worse things, and we consider ourselves good compared to the bad other people have done that we haven't done. Or maybe we begin to play this class system in our minds where we think that our success in life and the things that we have and the things that we enjoy, even monetarily, we think are somehow attached to the fact that we've been good and other people have just been bad and we think we're better because we've been good and we think they're not as good as us because they've been bad. We think we're smarter. We think that we have an edge above over other people and so we put ourselves in that light and it is deism because we've made our behavior what we rely on for our favorable lifestyle and our perceived success. So in essence, we've made our own self-dependence, our own God, without even realizing it. Moralistic therapeutic deism consists of beliefs like these. People would say, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth, and God really just wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and you know other world religions. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself, and maybe God can help with that. God does not need to be particularly involved in your life, except when he's needed to resolve a problem. And, of course, 
the token phrase of moralistic therapeutic deism would say good people go to heaven when they die because they think that it's attached to our goodness and they think that they're relying on their behavior and well, I'll be a good person and then I'll get rewarded for being a good person. Now, don't misunderstand me. The Bible is very clear about our works. James, the entire book of James talks and makes this argument about how good works actually show that we trust in God and it glorifies God when we do good works. That's why James says, if you say that you have faith without works, I'll actually show you my faith by my works. But it's not that those works that I do and the good deeds that I do earn me merit or earn me favor in God's eyes. That's the difference. The good works should come from my relationship and my dependence on Jesus, not as a pathway to Jesus. You see, it's a different way of thinking because moralistic therapeutic deism says I'm earning merit badges and God likes all the merit badges that I have because I have been so good. I have done all the right things. I, I, I have done and behaved correctly. And you trust in that and you say, I'm better because I think this way and everyone else is second class. And you think that God has some sort of rating system with Christians that there are like Christians he really, really likes and then there's the rest of us that he just tolerates. Like we're in the family, but you know, like we're that cousin that's coming this Thanksgiving. You know who it is. Don't laugh too much. It might be you. But we think that we're better. And because we think we're better, it, it causes us to have hardened hearts towards people we would consider enemies. And we class people into heroes and villains. We class people into better and not quite as good. And we think that we have the right to do that. That somehow someone made us judge to do that. And it feeds this arrogance in our heart and this pride. And it puts us in a position similar to Jonah's. You would think, after an entire city repents, a wicked, evil city that is historically wicked, you would think if they repent after a five-word sermon and not even a good one, like he didn't have three points, he didn't have a poem, he didn't have any good illustrations, he didn't have a good opening, he didn't have a solid closing, he had five words. Lame sermon by today's standards, but God used it. God used it, and people repented. You would think after a sermon like that, Jonah would have gone back to all of his prophet buddies, you know, where they hang out and drink coffee together, you know, at their once-a-month prophet gathering. And they would have, like, their, their prophet gathering. All the prophets are hanging out. And Jonah would have been like, guys, you're never going to believe what happened. I went to Nineveh. I ran from God, but then I, I, I decided I'm going to go to my enemies, and, 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 I, and, I, and I told them God was going to destroy them, and, 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 and they repented, and like oh, everybody, like you should have seen the cutest little cat. He was in the little sackcloth. You should have seen, yeah, I mean, you should have seen even the animals. You should have seen it, wouldn't you think? He would be telling those types of stories. Praise God, all the repentance that happened. And guess what? God didn't destroy them. But Jonah gets swole up, gets mad at God because God didn't dole out destruction on his enemies. You know, Jonah, being a good prophet, he probably knew the story of Sodom and Gomorrah really well. And he was hoping like for the sequel where he got to see the destruction of his enemies and these wicked people. And instead they repent and God spares them? That's not the story he wanted to see. That's a terrible ending in Jonah's mind. He wanted to see like fireballs from heaven and buildings crumble and people screaming and running for their lives. And he wanted to revel in that. And we know he wanted to revel in that because he went and found the highest viewpoint he could and he just wanted to see the city destroyed. 
That's what he wanted. And sometimes we do the same thing when we begin to look at other people, especially those who have hurt us in that light. We want to revel in their destruction. We want to see them suffer as they've made us suffer. We want to see them hurt because they've hurt us. And we definitely don't want to show them grace. We definitely don't want to show them mercy. We definitely don't want them to experience what we've experienced because, and even if they did, we still have the cutting edge. We still are cut above. And people believe in that, man, and it traps us. Let's go over to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. I'm going to give you a little bit of history here on the purpose of the book of Romans and kind of the setting and what was going on so you can better understand what we're about to read. The church in Rome was made up of Jewish Christians and Roman Christians. And these Romans were Greeks uh, and they had grown up worshiping pagan idols. I mean, that's just what they grew up doing. And then when they heard the gospel, they repented from that and they got saved and Jesus changed their life and now they're gathering in the church. But there's also these Jewish people who they grew up in their Jewish tradition and they grew up in all of the rituals and all the holidays and all the celebrations and all the rhythms of the Jewish person. And then they realized, wow, Jesus was that promised Messiah. And they put their faith and trust in him and now they're Christians too. But now they've got a problem. They think the other is better. The Jews think that they're better, obviously, because they can trace their lineage back to Abraham, right? They can say, well, we're, we're children of Abraham. Like, we have, we have the DNA, right, all the way back, and that's important, and that makes us special, and we have all these rituals, and God chose us, and God has done so much for us and used us, and, and so we are superior because we're Jews, and we had a moral code that we lived by, and, and we worked really hard to try to get it right, and the Greeks are like, that doesn't matter. You think you're saved because of the law? I understand grace better than you do because I was a Gentile, and I understand I've been brought in, and wasn't it the Jews that crucified Jesus anyways? We didn't do that. It wasn't us. That was y'all's bad, not us. And they're thinking they're superior. They think they have the high ground because they don't have to go through all of the challenges that the Jewish people had to go through and all of the things that they were dealing with. And so each one had their own reasons for feeling superior because of their past experiences, but they're all going to church together. Does that sound familiar? People from different ideologies going to church together? People of different backgrounds, different likes, different preferences going to church together? That doesn't sound familiar at all. <laughs> of course it sounds familiar. And Paul writes this letter because he wants them to understand the gospel. What is Paul trying to do? Paul's trying to unify them through preaching the gospel. So what he's trying to do is he's trying to take them in their place of their high position, get them off of their high horse and get them unified and help them to see they need Jesus. And so that's why he writes things like this. In the book of Romans, let's read the third chapter. Let's start in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews better, any better off? No, not at all. For we already charge that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This is encouraging. Their throat is an empty, open grave, and they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips, and their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. 
and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He's saying, listen, you're saved by faith in Christ alone. It's through what Christ did. It's not through what you did. It's not because you're a Jew. It's not because you're Greek. It's not because you did a really good job holding, upholding the law, because Scripture says that to break one part of the law is to break all of it. And I don't know about you, but I've broken at least one part of the law. <laughs> Guilty, you got me, right? All of us have broken at least one part of the law. And so Scripture says that to break one part is to break all of it. And so I have offended God. I have sinned. And the wages of sin, Scripture is very clear about it, is death. Not just talking about a physical death, but talking about an eternal separation from God. True death is being eternally separated from God. And that's where we were headed. But then Jesus steps in the scene. While we were yet enemies of God, Jesus Christ died for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could know righteousness. And now that free gift has been given to you and to me. And all we have to do is receive it by faith. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense at all, but that's the grace of God. It's very different from our value system. You see, that's where we want to hold things over people's heads. We learned last week that God said he forgives our sin and forgets them as far as the east is from the west. They're cast into the sea, and he doesn't remember them anymore. Wow. But you and I remember things because it hurts. You and I remember things because there's people involved, and we take it personally. You and I get stuck, and we get stuck in this loop. And this loop that we get stuck in causes bitterness to constantly be fed, and it gets stronger and deeper, and those roots grow in our heart. And it changes the way we trust God. It changes the way we treat people. It changes the way we look at other people. It changes the way that we understand grace, because then we begin to think that we somehow are privileged, and we receive something that we're not willing to give to other people, and that's not the gospel. It's not my job or my right to decide who gets mercy and forgiveness because I'm not the judge, amen? I'm not the judge. Jonah rejected God's grace because he considered himself worthy and others unworthy. The same guy that just got saved from the belly of a well in a storm, right? The same guy who saw his people delivered even under wicked King Jeroboam II. When they didn't deserve to be delivered, God still gave a military victory. When he sees all these things happening in his lifetime, and he sees the hand of God undeniably at work in his own life, in the sailors' lives, and now in the people of Nineveh's life, and he goes, nope, they're not worth it. They, should, they don't deserve that. Well, what do they deserve? They deserve to be punished. I think that's something that may be a little bit more relevant um, in our lives that may be sensitive, and I know it's sensitive, um, I think that a lot of us here in this room, um, except for those who are really young, remember September 11th. I re we all remember where we were on that day, right? And we remember how we felt 
I was 11 days away from getting married that day. Um, and I was working part-time as a youth pastor and full-time um, at a munitions plant putting together bombs, believe it or not. Your pastor used to put together bombs on an assembly line. Um, hellfire missiles, tank rounds, all that fun stuff. And um, I was there working that day in the factory when, um, when we got the news. And I was angry, I was scared. I mean, I was, I was just a teenager. I was, you know, I was just so nervous about my future, about our country's future, about our safety. All, you, we didn't know what was going on. And I remember when we heard that the mastermind behind this plot was named Osama bin Laden, hatred in our heart for Osama bin Laden grew. I mean, I remember seeing people, you know, taking pictures of Osama bin Laden out to the gun range, you know. Um, I remember seeing all sorts of things like that. And then finally, um, several years go by, and our military caught the guy, right? And he died. They, they had a big firefight. He died. And he died, and a lot of people just began to celebrate. Yeah, we got him. We, we punished evil. And as a Christian, I pause because although I'm happy that the evildoer was caught and he died because he caused the death of so many, I pause and I have to ask myself, did I ever pray that he would repent and that he would find Christ? Did I ever pray for someone that evil and that wicked who caused that much pain? Because think about this, the king of Nineveh was Jonah's Osama bin Laden. The king of Nineveh had tortured his family and his friends, had killed hundreds if not thousands of people, had caused terror in their lives. He was truly a terrorist since birth. He didn't become a terrorist, he was born a terrorist because these people had been terrorizing nations for hundreds of years. They were causing fear, they were evil, they were wicked. The last thing that Jonah wanted to see was that guy repent. And then he does after he finally reluctantly goes to him and preaches a five-word sermon. That puts it in a little bit realer context for you and I about what Jonah was dealing with. We can have a little bit more grace uh, for Jonah in that moment because we go, oh man, that's real, <laughs> you know. We get all judgy towards Jonah like, whoa, I wouldn't have done that. I would love them. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> Stop it. This story's not in the Bible because you wouldn't do it. This story is in the Bible because it's to show us the human condition and it shows us our need for grace and it shows us our attitudes towards our enemies. That's hard, man, I don't like that. But was Jesus serious when he said I'm supposed to love my enemy, when I'm supposed to pray for them? And not the type of prayers like if my boss is my enemy, like I wanna see him get what's coming to him. <laughs> That's, here's the thing, when you speak the truth to someone in love or when you're praying for someone, you want me to tell you how you can always speak that truth in love and how you can always keep a heart anchored in love towards them? Make your goal of whatever you want to tell them. Make your goal always repentance and reconciliation, not you being proven right. If your goal is for you to be proven right, then you'll never go speak the truth in love. You'll always be speaking the truth in arrogance. You'll always speak in the truth from a haughty, prideful heart. You won't be speaking the truth in love because Jesus didn't go around saying, I told you so. Or, oh, they'll come back around. They'll see I'm right. See, mm-hmm, told you so. Bunch of morons. <laughs> that was not the heart of Jesus. And Jesus wanted us to understand the truth because he knew the truth would set us free. And he spoke some hard things, but he did it always with the motive for repentance and for reconciliation. 
It is always to see hearts and lives changed, not just to be proven right. That's a selfish motive. You see, the enemies of God are those who simply reject his gift of free grace. The enemies of God don't necessarily have names and faces, and they're not people in the sense of individuals who hurt us. The enemies of God are those who just don't want his grace. And as we read the story of Jonah, Jonah was rejecting the grace of God because he thought that he could select who got the grace of God. So thus, in himself, he didn't understand it. And he wasn't receiving a free gift. He instead wanted to be able to say who got it and who was worthy, putting him in the seat of God instead of trusting God, instead of relying on God. See, the big idea today is we do not get to choose who deserves grace. We don't get to choose that. Romans 10 and 13, we see the heart of God where he wants everyone to come to faith. Where we see in Romans 10 and 13 that whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. We see that in the life of Jonah with all these people who didn't deserve salvation, wicked people, pagan people. But what they do? They called out on the name of the Lord in their moment of desperation and God saved them. Wow. Shouldn't we be celebrating that? Shouldn't we be praying for that? This means that you aren't more deserving of grace than other people because God gives grace to our enemies because before Christ entered our lives, we were enemies of God. That's what scripture says. Even when you were on your best behavior, before you knew Christ, you were an outsider. You were an enemy of God because you were trusting in yourself, even if you were a do-gooder, even if you were super charitable and benevolent, even if you were really nice and you never even said bad words, <laughs> even if you just listened to encouraging things and you were trying to be a nice person, no, you're an enemy of God if you haven't trusted in his grace because the only pathway to God is Jesus Christ, amen? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. None of us can have access, but because of Jesus, we've been grafted in, we've been adopted into the family of God to where we were once enemies of God, we are now children where we cry out, Abba, Father, what a glorious promise. Isn't that amazing? That we were once aliens, strangers, enemies, and now we're called sons and daughters, all because of Jesus, all because of what he did. That's grace, us getting what we did not deserve. I don't know about you, but I don't want what I think I deserve. I don't want what I think I have earned for myself. I instead want what God wants for me, and I want to trust him for everything that I need. And as I trust in him, God's character should influence my life. I should be different. It's not about I get saved and then I go, check that box, I'm good, right? You show up on Christmas and Easter to fulfill my religious obligations. <laughs> That's not the heart of God. The heart of God wants us to continue to grow and transform, not just fulfill duties and rhythms and obligations. God wants us to continually grow. You should be different because of Christ. You should be different today than you were the day before. My hope and prayer is that our church catches the vision and the heart that they want to gather together in small groups, large gatherings on Sunday, and be the body of Christ expecting transformation to take place in their lives and others. That we come expecting that you gather together with other believers. It doesn't matter if it's just two or three of you because the Bible says he's there. 
It doesn't matter if there's a few hundred of us here. It doesn't matter if it's online. If you're gathering, you should expect to be different when you walk away than before you entered. If you come with that expectation, you say, I need to grow, I need to change, and maybe today you need to grow, maybe today you need to change, maybe the Holy Spirit is using this message to help open your eyes and soften your heart to some things that maybe you've been holding on to. Maybe it was something that your ex-spouse did or said. Maybe it was something that your parents did or said. Maybe it was something that happened at work. Maybe it was pain that someone else caused you that has disappointed you. Maybe it's something that happened in the context of the local church. Maybe it was another Christian that wounded you. And maybe God's wanting you to deal with that because you're saying who gets what and you're trying to feel like you're better because you're trying to take the high ground and God is saying stop trying to take the moral high ground and start being a recipient and a dispenser of grace. Start acting like a child of God who is anchoring themselves in the gospel. I know it's hard, I know it's difficult. It was hard for Jonah. It's hard for us, it's difficult. But what if Jesus was serious when he told us to love our enemies? What does that mean and how do I do that? It's through the character of God that should influence our lives and our hearts towards our enemies. Ephesians chapter six. In verse 12, last scripture I'm going to read today. Ephesians 6 and verse 12. Paul writes this to the church in Ephesus. He said, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He's trying to tell us, listen, it's not a flesh and blood thing. I know that those people who hurt you have names and faces. And I know that they probably still wish ill on you. I, I get that. And it's not right what happened. It's not right what was said. But you can keep chasing after your own brand of justice. You can keep hanging on to the past. You can keep getting stuck on that cycle and that loop and just hitting repeat over and over again and get stuck and bitter and angry. Or you can find the peace and the joy of the Lord. You can find the healing that God wants you to find by stepping out in faith and doing the hard thing. What Jonah had to do was a hard thing. And I believe what God is calling you to do is, is gonna be a hard thing. That may be a phone call, that may be a meeting, that may be writing a letter, that may be confessing your sin to someone and seeking out help and counsel. Whatever it may be, Jesus was serious when he said that we're supposed to love our enemies because we were all enemies. Trusting in God's grace requires that I humble myself to recognize I need grace just as much as my enemies. <laughs> Not that person that you wish was here hearing this message today. You. Trusting in God's grace requires you to humble yourself to recognize I need grace just as much as my enemies. I need forgiveness just as much as my enemies. I need his love just as much as my enemies. I need his mercies that are new every morning just as much as my enemies. I need Jesus just as much as my enemies. And I pray that they find him and I pray that their hearts are soft and their eyes are open 
And I'm not going to let me holding on to the past dictate what God wants to do in me and through me anymore. I'm not going to play the victim. I'm not going to hang on to that anger anymore. I'm going to let that thing go and lay it at the feet of the cross. I'm not going to stay chained to that addiction that's been nursing the pain. I'm going to get help and find freedom from Christ that only he can give. I'm not going to seek comfort in television or, or food or alcohol or, or spending money or, or just wasting my life away trying to numb the pain and find some sort of sense of joy and chase after frivolity and chase after all of these shallow things. Chase after position and prestige and a parking space at the company and find my identity and my worth in that, and maybe then I'll feel good. No, you can be set free by letting that thing go and giving it to Jesus and recognizing that the same grace that's needed for your enemies is needed for you. The same grace you need is the same grace that that person that violated your trust needs, that hurt you, that abused you, that abandoned you, that neglected you, that said all those terrible things about you and spread all those lies about you. You need grace just as much as they do. And when we recognize that, it humbles us. This changes our heart towards those who are different than us. And that's the whole point. It changes our attitude. No, it's not Jew or Greek. No, no, no. It's not good guys and bad guys. It's not, it's not villains and heroes. It's saved and lost. That's what it is. And my heart should break for the lost because Jesus didn't go, oh, well, one sheep slipped out of the gate. <laughs> Stinks to be that sheep. <laughs> no, what did he do? He left the 99. He went to go find it. That's the heart of God. So let's pray and ask for him to help us with this because we need help with this. Lord, we come before you humbly and we just say we need you. We recognize that you are the good shepherd. We recognize that you are the God who loves us, that you are the God who has gone to incredible heights and depths that we can never fully even comprehend to reach us, to save us. And we rest in that and we depend on that. Help that understanding, Lord, to be cemented in our hearts in a way that will transform the way we interact and act around other people, especially those who may make things more difficult for us, those who hurt us. Help us to live in a way that would bring you honor and glory, Lord, and not get stuck in the past. Help us to forgive. Help us to move forward. Help us to find healing and seek reconciliation and help us to pray for our enemies. Help us to have a heart of compassion that their eyes would be open to and their hearts would be softened that they may be saved no matter what atrocities they may have caused. We know that your grace is sufficient because it's been sufficient enough for us. Help us to remember that and live that out in Jesus' name. Amen.